This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode 144, entitled, Introducing the Christology in the Book of Revelation. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us this week at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. We began last week's episode looking at how the book of Revelation, one of the most polarizing documents in the Bible, portrays the true God. This week, we will look at Revelation's Christology and begin to chart how the person of Jesus is portrayed within Revelation's text and with Revelation's signature images and metaphors. We will also look at the relationship between Jesus and God, noting how the two work together and if the two are ever collapsed into a single essence of being. This series on the nature of God and Christ within the book of Revelation will very likely be a lengthy series spanning multiple podcast episodes. Having studied the book of Revelation extensively in my own doctoral work, which concluded with my dissertation, and having overseen doctoral students of my own in a recent seminary course on Revelation, I look forward to sharing some key truths located in this often confusing document. Does the book of Revelation portray Jesus Christ as God's equal? Is Jesus fully divine in the Apocalypse of John? Do we see evidence that Jesus is the second person of a supposed triune God within Revelation? Or is the Christology of Revelation much simpler? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is the hierarchy of the Apocalypse of John. And we'll begin with the very first verse in Revelation, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. That's Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. And so we begin with this phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And grammatically, this phrase is ambiguous. Because when you have the noun of another noun, we want to know is the noun that is related to the other noun, in the genitive case, a subjective genitive or an objective genitive. For those that aren't familiar with these phrases, the subjective genitive in regard to the revelation of Jesus Christ would involve Jesus as the one who gives and controls the revelatory experience. Is this the revelation that is 
from Jesus? Or is this the objective genitive, meaning it is the revelatory experience that reveals the person of Jesus, being the revelation of Jesus, as in the revelation that reveals Jesus? So is Jesus functioning as the subject or as the object within this genitive construction? So while both of these are possible grammatically, it seems that the context demands that the opening phrase be interpreted as the revelation from Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that gives this particular revelation. However, we quickly see that Jesus is not the source of John's revelatory experience. As we can see in this passage, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him. God gave this revelation to Jesus. And there is much we can discern from the truth that is presented to readers in this opening verse. First, while the Jesus presented in Revelation is the risen and highly exalted Jesus, Jesus nevertheless is the beneficiary of that which God gives to him. The Jesus presented here is not omniscient. That is, Jesus is not all-knowing because God had to give this revelation to Jesus. Second, we learn from this passage that Jesus is clearly distinguished from God. And this God is defined in the Greek text as O Theos, the God. Jesus is distinguished from the God. So although Jesus has been risen and highly exalted, he has not been so exalted as to be absorbed into the identity of God. The God and Jesus Christ remain distinct, and there is no evidence that Jesus is understood to be included into the Godhead at this point of Christian history. That happens hundreds of years later. Third, we appear to have a naturally flowing hierarchy in the manner in which this revelation is passed on to the seven Asian churches, and by extension on to modern readers as members of the same body of Christ. According to Revelation 1 verse 1, the God gave the revelation to Jesus, Jesus sent and communicated the revelation through his angel, and this angel brought it to John the seer. John, of course, was told to write the words of this revelatory experience to the seven churches. And these churches preserved the contents of what we call the book Revelation, which eventually was canonized and placed into English translations of the Bible. We can observe this hierarchy that while Jesus Christ is ranked above the members of the seven Asian churches, above John the seer, and of course above Jesus' angel, Jesus nevertheless is outranked by God, namely the God. Fourth, we should not take lightly the fact that the person of Christ is described with his given human name which is Jesus. 
The noun Jesus, Jesus in Greek, appears 14 times in the text of Revelation. And it's probably no accident that 14 is a multiple of 7, and we should all be rightly reminded that Revelation's favorite symbolic number is 7. Referring to Christ as, quote-unquote, Jesus, highlights his humanity, albeit a human being who has been highly exalted even above the heavenly angels. Now, I point out this fact that Christ is called Jesus here because Revelation's most frequent way of describing Christ is with the image of the Lamb. And the Lamb is used more than twice as many times as the given human name Jesus. So Jesus is far more frequently described as the Lamb than he is described with the name Jesus in Revelation. So from a narrative perspective, we don't actually see the man Jesus revealed in terms of the Lamb until chapter 5. So it's interesting that the foundational way that Christ is presented is what we see in this opening verse as Jesus the human Christ. So enough about Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. Let's move on to our second point. Point number two today is Jesus among the greeters of the apocalypse. I'm going to read chapter 1 verses 4 through 5 which says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you in peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. That's Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. It was a standard literary technique to identify the senders of a letter within the genre of Greco-Roman epistles. And the book of Revelation is indeed an epistle in addition to being an apocalypse. Those who are familiar with the letters of Paul will recognize the similar construction, where the author identifies himself, the recipients are then identified, and a greeting is presented. And so when we see here, we have a greeting, and the greeting comes from three different parties. The first party is him who is and who was and who is to come. This clearly refers to God, the one who exists, the one who was, and the one who is to come. This kind of all-existing being. And then we have the seven spirits who are before his throne. So we know that the one who is and who was and who is to come is the one who is seated upon the throne. And again, that is the one, the one person who is seated upon the throne. The one who is and who was and who is to come is a single person. But we have seven spirits that are before God's throne. Now there are some people that think that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. But... We do know in Judaism, especially at the time of the writing of Revelation, that there were seven special angels, seven archangels, that helped 
God within his heavenly throne room. In fact, these seven were all named. And within Revelation, these seven spirits are described as seven angels. So it seems that the seven spirits are seven heavenly angels that are before God's throne. This is not a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's not the sevenfold Holy Spirit. It is the seven spirits in the plural. And when it says the seven spirits who are before God's throne, the references there are also plural. And then we have the third party. We have and from Jesus Christ. So in this reference, we can see that Jesus is distinguished from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And since the one who is and who was and who is to come sits upon a throne, this person can be none other than God. Jesus is therefore distinguished from the God who is seated upon the throne, and there is no indication that Jesus has been absorbed into the identity or into the being of the God who sits upon the throne. So in short, the seven Asian churches are greeted by God, God's angels, and by Jesus Christ. If we want to describe this as a tripartite greeting, then we need to admit that this greeting is from God, angels, and from Jesus, not from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think that's very, very fascinating. That when Revelation wants to give a tripartite greeting, it is the angels giving the greeting, not the Holy Spirit. Let's move on to our third and final point today, which is Jesus Christ defined. As Jesus is introduced in the greetings, Jesus is further explained and described with a variety of phrases. We see this in Revelation 1, verses 5 through 6, which says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's Revelation 1, verses 5 through 6. Now we learn much about Jesus in this greeting. And the descriptions here set the tone for the narrative of Revelation and what sort of theology Revelation expresses to its readers. So we begin by seeing that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. And if you were translating this from Greek into English, it would be very natural for you to translate it as the faithful martyr, because the word for witness is the word martis. And so we can see from this description that as a faithful witness, Jesus was a gospel preacher. He was someone that witnessed something to others. Characteristically in the New Testament, a witness is someone who witnesses the gospel message, the good news about the kingdom of God. But Jesus is not the witness simply. 
He is the faithful witness. And whenever I see somebody as faithful in Scripture, I want to ask the question, faithful to whom? Well, clearly, Jesus was faithful to God. And this passage describes God as his God and Father. Jesus has a God. Jesus has a Father. Jesus' God was the Father. And Jesus was faithful unto his God. Now, it's important to know that the word witness, prior to the writing of the book of Revelation, did not have martyrdom connotations. It meant someone who spoke something that they saw, someone who spoke something that they experienced. It could refer to a witness within a law court setting, but it did not, prior to the writing of the book of Revelation, have the meaning of someone who died for what they spoke. It is not until the book of Revelation that this word begins to start to be understood and used subsequently as someone who spoke something and then they died for it, to where the word witness has become a martyr. A martyr in Revelation is someone who dies for their faithful engagement of the gospel, their faithful communication of the good news. So Jesus here is the faithful martyr. He faithfully preached the gospel even unto his death. And since Jesus here is the faithful martyr, that indicates that Jesus died. Jesus was mortal. And we all know that God cannot die. And God is never described as a martyr in Revelation. Jesus, of course, did die. But, triumphally, he was raised from the dead. And that leads us to the next phrase, where Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, which makes sense. If he was the faithful martyr, then he died, and then the text wants to indicate that he was raised from the dead. So, there are many dead persons, billions of dead persons, but Jesus is the firstborn of the dead meaning he is the first mortal to be resurrected to immortality. As the firstborn of the dead, that means that others are going to come after him to be raised from the dead. Now, firstborn, as a title, is a phrase that carries two possible meanings, and both seem to be expressed within this passage. Firstborn could mean first in time. And Jesus clearly was the first person to be raised from the dead to a state of immortality. That has not happened to anybody else. So Jesus was the first person that could be described with that phrase. So he was the firstborn of the dead to immortality in time. And firstborn could also mean first in rank. And surely from all the dead persons, Jesus ranks the highest. Psalm 89, verse 27, describes firstborn as the highest of the kings in all the earth, clearly indicating that firstborn is a high-ranking term. Of course, the very next phrase that we see in Revelation, in our current passage, says much of the same, indicating that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. So I believe we are on solid ground seeing firstborn as both a reference to Jesus being the first 
mortal raced immortality and as a reference to Jesus as the highest ranked king. So let's look at that reference, Jesus being the ruler of the kings of the earth. Although the kingdom of God has not yet been fully consummated, Revelation expresses its inaugurated eschatology in this passage by firmly insisting that Jesus is already reigning and ruling the kings of the earth. Jesus is the one who is ruling the kings of the earth right now, according to Revelation chapter 1. Now, the kings of the earth in the time of the writing of Revelation certainly included the emperor of Rome. So announcing Jesus as the ruler of the kings of the earth was a statement that subverted imperial claims to power. This, of course, would have dissuaded those readers of Revelation that were tempted to compromise by accommodating to the Roman Empire instead of giving strict allegiance to God and to the Lamb only. Now, the insistence that Jesus is already ruling says something about him and the God who sits upon the throne. Hear me out on this. By portraying God as the one who sits upon the throne, we can see that God is in charge, God is in control, and God is exercising a measure of his rule. By portraying Jesus as already ruling, this indicates that God has shared his authority to rule with Jesus. In other words, Jesus is currently ruling because God has shared the prerogative of rulership with the risen human Jesus. And then we have the phrase, to him who loves us and who freed us from our sins with his blood. And of course, this is a further expression of the mortality of Jesus Christ, because the phrase expresses how the blood of Jesus has freed believers. Jesus died, and his blood was truly and wholly spilt for other people. He didn't partially die or only die in a non-complete way. His death was complete and full. As a human being, Jesus naturally had blood. And the understanding of atonement within the book of Revelation indicates the freeing power of Jesus' blood. By using this freeing language, this suggests that formerly believers were enslaved to their sins. The death of Jesus, which is never qualified as a death of only one of two natures that Jesus supposedly possesses, is a death that liberates Revelation's readers. Having already expressed Jesus as the firstborn of the dead and that Jesus was martyred, we get some clarifying information that Jesus' blood was indeed spilt. In other words, the descriptions of Jesus expressed in the greeting of Revelation highly emphasize his mortality and his death, things which are never said of God because God is immortal. 
God cannot die. It is impossible for God to die. Revelation insists that Jesus died. And of course, Jesus has a God. The passage in Revelation 1-6 says, To his God and Father, Jesus' God is defined as the Father, and Jesus has a God above him. So, in conclusion, we have observed that the book of Revelation has much to say about the identity, person, and significance of Jesus Christ. And Revelation's narrative wastes no time giving readers many indicators of its Christology. There is much to conclude about what John the Seer believed about Jesus based upon the opening remarks in the first chapter. We first noted that while the revelation is given from Jesus, Jesus received this revelation from God, demonstrating that even in his risen and exalted state, Jesus is not omniscient. Revelation consistently distinguishes Jesus from God, and it never applies the title of God to Jesus. Furthermore, Jesus sits below God in the hierarchical chain of command, indicating Jesus' subordination to God. Second, we observe that John records a greeting to the seven Asian churches from him who is, who was, and who is to come, from the seven angels before God's throne, and from Jesus. By presenting the greeting of Revelation to its readers in this manner, Jesus is again distinguished from the God who is seated upon the throne. Lastly, we saw that Revelation unveiled the person and work of Jesus with many key phrases. Jesus was faithful to God in his ministry of gospel preaching, which led to his martyrdom. Having died, Jesus was raised from the dead as firstborn. As the resurrected Christ, Jesus has been exalted to a position where he currently acts as the ruler of the kings of the earth. Moreover, Jesus' blood has freed Revelation's ideal readers from their sins, which is a further indication that Jesus truly died. Thus far, the book of Revelation has revealed and unveiled many key truths about Jesus. Jesus is a human being who is subordinate to God. Jesus was martyred, Jesus died, and his blood was spilt. Jesus has a God, and this God is distinguished from Jesus. Revelation does not portray Jesus as co-equal or co-eternal with the Father. Therefore, indicating that Revelation's Christology is incompatible with Trinitarian theology. It seems best to regard Jesus as the crucified and risen human Christ. And this better suits biblical Unitarian Christology. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. 
Join us next week as we continue to look at Revelation's Christology in what is likely to be a lengthy series of podcasts. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. You can support the podcast for absolutely free by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends, by rating and writing an honest review on iTunes. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you may check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Special thanks to Dustin Williams for his post-production and editing of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast every single week. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks be safe and take care.